KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. I am Mark Bono. This is the Henry George Program, a show all about social housing, public housing, and single-family detached homes. To the program, we have on Jennifer Bradshaw from Vancouver, Canada, and she is here to talk about social housing, public housing, and the many fights over it versus luxury housing in Vancouver. So we'll get into the nuts and bolts of how social housing is done up there and much, much more without uh, further ado. Let's get into it. Yeah, so uh, th- thank you so much for coming uh, back on the show, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so uh, this is uh, a bit you've been talking about uh, on on Twitter recently uh, in the context of Vancouver uh, is, is social housing. Uh, and, you know, a th- and I feel like this is something, the definitions of public housing, social housing, it it could be contested. There's like in it's actually an ongoing thing of social housing in California. People are like even trying to like uh, control what this means. Uh, so I, I think it's a moving target. But I think there is at least some consensus. It sounds at least uh, where you're at. What public housing versus social housing is in Vancouver or Canada or just in general. So yeah, you know, just uh, I guess uh, yeah, introduce people to I think you know this distinction as as you understand it and you know why it, it's useful to think of it this way. Certainly. So in Vancouver and in BC and Canada in general nowadays, ever since about the 1970s, we have a pretty um, solid and stable definition of social housing, and that is usually a mix between market units and non-market units. And what happens is nonprofits will usually be be gifted, basically handed over some, a, a chunk of public land. So a city or a province or, a, or the feds, um, all of them, of course, have public land and some of them will one of them will um, give a chunk of land to a nonprofit. profit lately in vancouver at least that has been mostly the city giving up its lands to a nonprofit. Uh, the nonprofit will take that land and because they don't have to pay for land which is extremely expensive in extremely expensive cities um, they will not have a, a mortgage on the land but they will have a they'll take out a mortgage to build a new development um, and then what will happen is that uh, they will have both uh, non-market and market rents, and the market rents will subsidize the non-market housing units. So usually that mix ends up being, it can it can vary a little bit, but generally speaking, it's gonna be about a 70 to 30 mix of market to non-market. And then every single market unit, instead of the, 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 the they'll be charging market rents and there's profit involved there, but since it's a non-profit organization, obviously those, what would, what would be profit would go towards uh, subsidizing the non-market units. So let's say, we have for every single room, uh, let's say it's about $1,800 for a one bedroom here. And there's generally speaking, if it was a, pro- a for-profit building, about $500 would be landlord profits basically. But instead, those that $500 will go towards a family that can't afford $1,800 for one bedroom rent. And it will be subsidized to be, you know, $800 instead. So if you're, like, if you're a market rate, you know, if you're just a renter looking for a market rate unit, like, do you really know or care about, you know, who's running it if this is one of the nonprofits or if this is, uh, you know, uh, one of, you know, just a traditional landlord based thing? Because I feel like at the end, whether the money's used to subsidize others or it's just going to profits, it's kind of the same difference to you. So I just don't know if the experience, if that's the same or if there's a distinction. Uh- I don't think there is from a from a person that is renting a market rate unit from either a nonprofit housing provider or a you know landlord that is for profit that that experience is going to be the same. The only difference is that you'll you're, the community that you live in will have some people that are 
relatively lower income and that's a really good social mix and what the nice thing about that is you know kids from the lower income households has are living right next to uh kids from um, wealthier from average and wealthier households and they, everybody gets more opportunity that way and of course people who are from wealth wealthier families can also understand different experiences yeah it's 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 there's kind of a connection between kind of the uh, you know it's it's the market rate development that is done in a lot of cities now tries to claw back through you know inclusionary zoning 30% or so might be like they are forced to build as opposed to, we don't really have this kind of mix by nonprofits the, the nonprofits in America mostly are building like light tech kind of completely 100% subsidized mm-hmm. stuff but there, I think when you make the market rate people do it, there's a lot of kind of kicking and screaming. And there's like a lot of like I've seen, uh, you know, they'll make like separate entrances. So like it's like if you're going to make us build it, we're going to kind of like make them second class citizens within this building and all that. So I don't know. It sounds like when you actually have the social mixing be something which is kind of, I guess, the point or treasure by like this that's it's it seems like it's a lot healthier than making it like a penalty for people who are an unwilling accomplice to this to this you know deed restricted units as it were uh for sure so most of the time here for the nonprofit developments um the the good thing about the nonprofit build, owning the entire building is precisely that there's not going to be separate entrance entrances. There are the units are going to be exactly the same. Market rate versus subsidized. They're going to be nice brand new units. There's not going to be some any like visible class differences there. All the public amenities, any common spaces will all be shared by all. So that is the good thing about a nonprofit being given land and they can just build the entire building, um, and run it and run it equitably the thing they are there are some cases still here as well where what happens is i think that this is more along the lines of an inclusionary zoning sort of scenario where basically what happens is um there are cases where a condo developer a for-profit condo developer um will build a a building let's say you know a very tall tower with tons of condos in it and as part of the deal for the rezoning the city says okay well you have to contribute either space or land or units or something um, that will that are nonprofit or, or or social housing or subsidized. And so what and, and how that works basically is okay, well the condo development, which is very expensive and wealthy and all that, those folks will have a separate entrance. And then the nonprofit portion is actually given to a non is given to a nonprofit to run. And then then and the nonprofit will have um, a, a separate entrance and it, it's functionally it's basically it, it is one building but it's functionally separate mm. and owned by separate people and run by separate people and because the condo development will have lots of amenities um, that are very expensive to run and maintain the nonprofit will be like well those are expensive and if we try to maintain those things then we have to raise our rents and so they usually there, there's an agreement there where the nonprofit does not want to have to pay expensive you know, strata fees, basically. Um, and so that that's that is a, a split that does happen. It's kind of unfortunate because, yes, you're right. In that case, there is a bit of a class divide between the condo, condo owners and the social housing units. So and, and honestly, in all honesty, even the, the people paying market rents in that building um, under the social housing portion, they're also going to have a class separation between the condo units who are owners. And generally, yes, owners, of course, are going to be wealthier than renters. So that is not my preferred 
method, but also we are in a housing crisis and there are thousands of people on the streets. There are thousands of people on social housing wait lists. It's very necessary to have these houses, these homes ASAP. Otherwise people are literally dying every single day. Um, six people are dying from the opioid crisis every single day. And um, a, a disproportionate number of the people are people who are living rough or housing insecure. So I do believe that we do need to not wait for the perfect model or the perfect scenario, unfortunately. I do wish that we could move towards better models all the time. And it, I think we are, I believe we are, like, like I was saying, that model where we give some land to a nonprofit and the entire building is, is, is equitable and everybody has access to all the same amenities. That is a preferable model. That said, if there are for-profit condo buildings and there is some sort of deal there where um, some social housing units will be built, better than nothing. Sure. Yeah, I guess it's it's I, I'm you know just kind of curious like as far as like scaling this up because it seems like in a lot of ways I mean I I I just you know really love the social mix because I think like so many other ways I just think the way we build our cities we have segregated neighborhoods and i think segregated buildings within cities it's i think integration is hard and social housing is one of the keys that can unlock it but i guess that model i i mean i'm just looking at the overall production of of canadian or vancouver uh metro housing and you know the wide majority is condo is I, I think like condo to rental overall is like three to one uh, and there's still a, a significant portion of, of kind of detached, you know, just ownership housing as well. But, you know, if, if condos are the main th you know, the main thing, you have to you know make it work better. And I guess the, if the model is social housing with a land subsidy by, you know, basically the city, uh, you know, leasing out, allotting out this land for this, like how much land does the city control that it can do this? Because I feel like that sounds like a luxury to like have. Oh yeah, we'll just you know pull out some land at this place. Because I mean, I don't I don't know what the city's holdings are, but you can't do that forever unless it has a plan to kind of fill the coffers back up with you know more land. Uh, totally agreed. So, a couple of things, um, at least in the Vancouver context, uh, people think that condos are the, the biggest thing and we have to make it work because and make condos pay for things but actually um in vancouver the, the the still the majority of floor space that is being built every single year is actually single detached about 55 percent mm. of the floor space is single detached so and and, and, and about almost 70 percent i believe is, is low density so the majority is still low, low density. And that is, of course, much more luxury than any luxury condos that exist basically here. And so the problem is with making condos subsidize everything is that it excuses a very big chunk of very wealthy people from helping to subsidize lower income rents. It basically, all these people who are rebuilding or building these brand new single detached houses. Now, Vancouver is completely built up. The city of Vancouver is completely built up. So we're talking about replacing an old bungalow with a new McNashton, right? Yeah. And there's no value capture there whatsoever. There, there's no requirement for inclusionary zoning requirement for a new McMansion owner to provide any subsidized rents for people. So that is the number one thing. And again, that's the that's the majority of floor space that is currently being built. So it is an ex extremely inequitable solution or half solution right now that we have in Vancouver, where we are sure we are capturing some value from from for for profit condo development. Kind of okay, I suppose, but if I grit my teeth a little bit, um, but 
the, the number one problem is still spatial segregation where we have these vast uh, detached houses. And I don't know if you can see, but I live in a like a pretty mixed development area neighborhood right next to a SkyTrain station. I'm in a seven-story rental building. Hmm. Right down the street, I see a, a bunch of detached houses, all worth two, three million dollars now. Um, and that and a bunch of them are being rebuilt into detached houses. And those are, you know, it's interesting because they all have double garages, yet they still have a car in their driveway and they have cars on the street. Like these are people with like, I don't know, three, four cars each, right? Like we're talking about very wealthy people. I see, you know, Lexuses and Teslas all the time. It's disturbing to me that we still have this mistaken myth of a, you know huge luxury for-profit condos and Vancouver's being overrun with them. No, no, no. Those are still just just on the arterials, just around the SkyTrain stations, or just in the Vancouver metro, the downtown core. Realistically speaking, we still have blocks away, literally two blocks away from a SkyTrain station. We still have detached houses, which are always being rebuilt into larger McMansions and again like some of those older uh, houses will oftentimes have basement suites with uh, with lower income tenants those are those people are constantly being displaced every single time these houses are going through renovations or being rebuilt into these McMansions these new McMansions are being are, are housing usually very very wealthy people you know we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars a year sort of incomes um and those people are very very unlikely to rent they don't need yeah couple hundred dollars or a couple thousand dollars in terms for for rents to for their mortgages they're wealthy so it, that that is the major source of displacement in vancouver yet we are just letting it happen and those houses are appreciating incredible rents or incredible rates like the the prices recently even post covid right now the detached houses are just going everything is two three four million dollars <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That was, that was my most recent eviction was the basement of uh, ownership uh, housing townhouse in my case. But yeah, that's the thing. It's like we kind of say, oh, you know, mom, you know, mom and pops just let them run. But like, yeah, it's like there is kind of always a base level of you know, it's it's not great when you kind of have just uh, you know uh, individual ownership stuff with kind of just free reign. But uh, yeah, I think I was. I mean, I think the distinction. This is kind of a way like you pit to you pit you know different you know. Uh, better or worse things against each other when something much much worse is lurking and i think like i prefer rental apartments to condos i think for different reasons because i think one you have you know people who are not investors who i think have uh you know incentives to keep things affordable condos not so much but it's it's kind of spread out because you know you're just you can manage it whereas you know if you look at uh you know detached single family homes or something that's just that's just a disaster compared to condos even so as harm reduction goes condos i'll take it i i but i would like to you know i would across the board look how could we tweak the you know condo to apartment ratio and i I was like i think i was looking at like until 2011 where they did some changes here like i think it was like less than five percent of all of all, all of this was rental, you know, and, and I think the other 95 was all ownership. And that's a crazy ratio considering that I believe Metro Vancouver is majority renter, but only 5% for decades was, was uh, rental housing. And that, uh, that's a huge class divide given that like the income levels, lower income rent, higher income own. And like, that's incredibly inequitable. And I just, uh, I, I was, I was hearing you talk about, yeah, just kind of, you know, what, what is kind of driving, this kind of rental 
production or something at some level. So you, could you talk about that a bit? Sure. So in, uh, yes, around 2011, uh, the Vision Vancouver uh, Party in Vancouver um, that was, was in power. Um, and there, a you know, center-left uh, party, and they realized that the, the lack of rental production since the 70s was a, a major problem. The, the lack of purpose-built rental. There is, of course, again, you're right, there, it's majority rental households in Vancouver now. Um, and so what is happening are, yes, people in basement suites, people in secondary suites, people in yeah, ADUs, people um, renting condos. So people will buy condos and then let them out, right? Mm. That does happen uh, as well quite a bit. Um, but that was the problem with none, with, all, with most of those is lack of security of tenure, um, especially the mom and pop landlords. I was evicted once um, for because I am bisexual. I had a girlfriend at the time. I brought her home, <laughs> and the landlords didn't like it, so they kicked me out. And you no protections. No, I mean also, the the thing is there. It's incredibly hard to enforce RTA. There's there's a bunch of loopholes for specifically mom and pop landlords. They're not the same kind of protections as for you know professional um, purpose-built rental housing providers. And so the problem is, yeah, these landlords all they have to say is personal use. They don't. They're not going to say to anybody that you know. Oh, I'm kicking her out because she's bi. They're going to say, oh yeah. Uh, you know they're, they're a catholic household and uh, but they're yeah all they have to say is oh yeah we need it for personal use or we're gonna uh, you know renovate or whatever they, they can say whatever the hell they want yeah so like it's you know it just like i imagine there is provincial just cause protections on the books for you know the majority of rental things but yeah it's like there's all these loopholes and yeah that's mm-hmm. that sucks that sucks a lot so uh i mean in, in general like uh do you have like an idea of like how many people like are like really as far as renters are protected by provincial level tenant protections and how many are at the mercy of kind of of this? I don't really know what the numbers are offhand or just kind of your experience. Yeah, um, especially since so previous in the 70s and, and before then, there was quite a bit of rental production. There are pockets of Vancouver, like in the West End of the like the, there's the downtown peninsula basically and then uh, a portion of it we call it the west end that one has a bunch of rental and that was built largely in the 70s those are old and a lot of them are going to start we're, we're going to have to rebuild them sometimes sometime soon that's going to be a displacement nightmare i'm worried about that um but uh basically back then there were quite a bit of rental apartments so there's a chunk of renters that are still in those old apartments those are still purpose-built rental and they're, they, they have better productions um, there are a big chunk of people uh, renting condos, and those are again personal use. It can be claimed that um, you can you can kick out those people quite a bit. The nice thing about condos, though, compared to like renting out a basement suite, like I was, you don't live in the the the, the landlord doesn't you know live above you. They can't they don't have they can't control your life as much as uh, you know a condo where you, usually the owner is going to live somewhere else. Um, so. I prefer renting. I, I personally would certainly prefer renting out a condo. I've considered it. I haven't yet, but I'd much rather prefer renting out a condo than a business suite or an ADU where the landlord is basically, you know, breathing down your neck. Yeah, some people say like, oh, you know, it's like it's good if it's less financialized. Yeah. You have a personal connection. Personally, I don't yeah. like the personal connection. I think that there's only bad news when a person who has control over your life is someone who has like a, a presence. I'd rather it be an official office you know like 100 
yeah, yeah. But actually that you can see definitely um the most people prefer it that way and you can see that between um the rental prices between uh renting out a condo and renting out a purpose-built rental if you look at like like for like if you're looking at apples and apples in terms of quality actually the condos condo rentals rent for lower price than the purpose-built rental precisely because yeah, most people will prefer a professional landlord who actually has to tow legal lines um, compared to a mom and pop one that is like is very hard to make them accountable for kicking up. So back to like social housing production or kind of how like what what improvements are on the way? Like, I, I guess what are like what are the limiting factors as far as like making this a politics that can grow and can expand i you know i we we're talking earlier about the availability of land subsidy i i don't really know exactly how far this can expand before there needs to be kind of more radical ways to reacquire land or do whatever and i guess also how much uh you know kind of subsidy from you know uh government capital uh startup costs you know are, are needed as well just in general how practical is it that this will spin up to become a better degree and how much is this kind of it's going to be you know a lot of of, of work to get there there are some pieces falling in place uh, recently. So uh, the major politics, uh, you're right, uh, there's the, the land issue, the land scarcity issues, um, especially in popular metros. There is the financing issue. So most banks would prefer not to, uh, well, I mean, you, you, it's possible to get a mortgage from a bank for a nonprofit. It definitely does happen. But, uh, you know, interest rates, et cetera, it's easier to get financing um, if it's subsidized as well um, from governments. And that's it. that that piece. Um, we have a corporation in Canada, uh, the, the Canadian um, uh, Mortgage and Housing Corporation. It's a federal level uh, organization that um, receives uh, federal public subsidies to finance a bunch of loans for nonprofits for housing. And building housing so that the cmhc will fund social housing will they'll fund co-ops um i think they're starting to dabble into like affordable home ownership which i'm not sure how i feel about um that, that's but, something like they're, they're just i feel like it, it seems like that's similar to like american stuff like you know the mm-hmm. fannie mae freddie mac type stuff which in america is just entirely about subsidizing you know mortgages <laughs> and i i just don't know like how much like like does this uh what with cm cmhc or whatever does it does like is its main purpose uh you know kind of you know social housing adjacent stuff or and or is or does it also do mortgage stuff or is that something separate honestly i'm not sure what like how how their budget breakdown works out i believe yes you're right that it's it's a lot of it is 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 backing mortgages um so yeah, I would say that it, 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 it. My guess is that it's a growing portion of their portfolio is, is backing social housing mortgages, but um, I don't believe that is the the majority of their budget right now. I think it's about ten percent, but don't go into that. What, what do they mean when you, when you say affordable home ownership? Is this people like do they still become investors who are like accruing wealth through their property holdings? If it's quote, I don't know what affordable home ownership really means. Good question. So there's a couple. There are a couple of um, federal subsidies for first-time home buyers and such. Um, there are, when we say affordable ho- home ownership, there are some programs around co-housing where basically a group of people get together, they buy a piece of land, they they build a space which um, works for them, which might be some sort of like shared spaces like kitchens and and, and a yard is shared, a courtyard is shared. Um, they, those mortgages tend to be cheaper, they're shared, of course. Um, the, the form, they don't try to 
they I don't think they get rezonings usually, and so they they avoid the whole issue of of extremely difficult rezonings and stuff. They basically stay within the the form that is allowed in whatever zone zone or OCP the official community plans exist. Um, so whether that's a triplex or quadplex or duplex or I'm not sure, but anyway, um, they'll they'll kind of have a creative way of getting around a bunch of these rules. And yes, it is investment. I think most of the time co-housing is, is still, yes, people are invested in, their, they, they get the profits on the, from those land values. And that's precisely why I don't really believe that we, the government should be subsidizing these unless they are, the government gets all, all the land value capture. Um, but uh, yes, there are some, I believe, shared equity programs. Um, that the CMHC is backing as well, or at least I've, I've heard rumors that they're going to do more along those lines. Um, again, I, my preference is that they just back social housing because access sure. to financing is a big part of that for for social housing providers to expand their operations. I will mention though that like they've had cheap access access to cheap loans for quite a while. The major access, the major barrier for social housing to be able to scale up are, are rezonings. So municipal level land use regulations and land access. And yes, we are quickly running out of land at the at, in popular cities like Vancouver. Um, we are, and I think there are high priority, there are even higher priorities in social housing, I believe, for land in, at the city level. For example, we, sh or we should be returning a lot of it to the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh-Nations, the indigenous, the local indigenous groups here. So like and then of course there's things like schools and parks and lots of things that we should be building as a city publicly so it's limited and i agree with you that we need ways for the city the province to acquire more land and that's really where we should absolutely be capturing more of the value from these detached houses where again bungalows being rebuilt with mcmansions super high income super segregated none of that value is being um, is being captured by the public. That is one of the number one problems and is a hard problem to fix because of course, those are wealthy people. They have lots of political connections. Lots of our politicians are absolutely detached housing house owners and have been enjoying hundreds of thousands of dollars of equity appreci uh, appreciation of their houses every single year. And yeah, it's, it's a bigger piece of their income than is their their public salaries. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard problem to fix, um, but it is something that I think we need to uh, work on increasingly so. And there has been um, some pressure on the provincial government recently. There was a uh, housing affordability panel um, led by some ex-politicians actually, Joy McPhail and such. Um, and some, and there's a, lots of input by non-profit uh, non housing providers, by people like me they, who are in um, housing activism. There were some groups like, uh, uh, what are they called? Uh, the CCPA, the Canadian Center for uh, uh, Progressive, uh, sorry, I don't remember what they're, CCPA is, is it's basically a, a leftist think, think tank. And they're very much not in favor of housing uh, or home ownership subsidies and they're much more in favor of rental subsidies and low in public housing and low, and low income housing subsidized so um there was a big push for with a bunch of our local more like leftist and and, and social justice oriented groups to get that on put onto the provincial radar that panel did make those recommendations recently to the provincial government the provincial government Said no to a bunch of them, even though right currently our BC NDP uh, government is uh, is our center left. Um, well, they they, they said no to what precisely? 
it doesn't know to those uh, to 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 reevaluating our home ownership facilities like the housing. Oh, okay. Yes, yes. So they said they predictably said no. It's hard to fight. I know, especially because it's very still the vast majority of the population are homeowner are owners, are landowners, homeowners. So it's very hard to get rid of those subsidies. Um, in Vancouver, we have a majority renter population. If you look at the entire province, not even close, right? So I think it's about 70, 30, or even lower than that, 80, 20, maybe. Um, is, is most of the province population in Metro Vancouver? I don't really know what else is in British Columbia. Oh, gosh, uh, good, good question. Um, I don't think the majority is in Metro Vancouver. If it's... Okay. And the other parts are just more conservative and just oh, kind yeah. of, yeah, just like, I, yeah, I like seeing the overall rural, you know, there's the urban rural split is something you see everywhere. But yeah, I just like, I was just kind of, uh, you know, looking at the, uh, you know, fragmentation of Metro Vancouver. Like you have the city itself, which of course is also, you know, kind of separated into its kind of dense part and then the, the seas of low density stuff and then you have your ritzy like as i understand it like west vancouver is like the ritziest of the suburbs uh and then you have you know i think places that are just well if you can't be in vancouver you go out east you go to you know uh, was it barnaby or is that right barnaby, barnaby coquitlam langley okay yeah, yeah. So- let me talk about this for a while. <laughs> well, and like, just like offhand, like I've heard in the past, like, oh yeah, Winnipeg in the past is amalgamated into one big metro, but it seems like Vancouver is very much not amalgamated. And it seems like it seems like the politics must be completely unwieldy because, like, you're talking about social housing production, but you've shared stats showing like you've gotten almost all of it in like you know Vancouver itself. So yeah, so generally speaking, Vancouver is one of the like there are no Yimby organizations basically outside of Vancouver except a little bit in nascent nascent ones in in New West and Victoria. Again, the more leftist cities, really the bigger ones and and more more um yeah. Um, so the problem is with first of all amalgamation. I'm not a big fan of amalgamation. Vancouver did actually go through a round of amalgamation, I think, in the 30s. Uh, don't quote me on that. But yeah, earlier in the 1900s, we did have a round of amalgamation and some ritzier areas like uh, West Point Grey um, where yeah, we, we, we amalgamated. Um, not sure how I like about what I feel, how I feel about that because yeah, whenever you amalgamate, you are basically incorporating a bunch of suburbs into, your, into a city and predictably the city centers, the, the denser cores end up subsidizing those uh, the infrastructure and such and services of the suburbs. So everything from roads to pipes to I'm sure in California, the, the fire. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, no, I, I, feel like, I feel like in general, there's a lot, if you can actually get the city core to kind of like crack the whip and get the suburbs in order, but like you, you have the point that like inside Vancouver city itself, it can't even discipline its own suburbs within the city. So right. if you can't make West Point Gray, work what are the chances you're gonna make west vancouver work oh absolutely yeah that's a problem right and it's a surprise i i wasn't even know i didn't even know about this but uh, west vancouver has like some rental production um they they're not even the ritziest they do have some sections within west vancouver that are like ridiculous like what the british properties literally called the british properties so you know. Hell yeah. um, 
settler land. Anyway, uh, there's also other suburbs that are just as, if not more so, extreme. It's, it's a, it's a McMansion suburbs, basically. They're Bal Balcara and Cora. There are these huge, they're, they're slightly farther from the Vancouver core than West Vancouver, but also bigger, like gigantic mansions. They're like celebrity mansions, basically. You know, it, it's like forest and they cut out a chunk of it for mansions, basically, right? Yeah. It's incredible how and they don't make the news in terms of affordability because they're not a downtown core or anything, but they are incredibly unaffordable, of course. And yeah, every time we try to build social housing, and the, and the, it's in those sort of municipalities where they don't get built because the, the vast majority of their constituents are mansion owners why would they say yes to social housing yeah and then there's and there's no real discipline i mean like oh. i guess e even in california everything's fragmented but we have at least in theory systems that kind of from the top impose oh even the these you know cities need to build so much you know levels of different levels of affordability but is there anything really cracking the whip to make sure that the that the uh exclusionary cities have to do anything no, not yet. And I, and I need to still read that the, the housing affordability panels report, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was one of the recommendations that they made was to have some sort of like provincial minimum, provincially mandated minimums in terms of affordable housing construction or just rental housing construction. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, I would love to see that. I think that was one of the, the, the most, the biggest successes from the, um, from California politics was just the, the housing minimums. Um, there isn't that here. So, yeah, yeah um, definitely a big uh, gap in our housing politics here. Well, it seems like either you kind of at least need, like, production to make sure exclusionary is stopping exclusionary, or, like, as a next best, you, uh, you know, are able to say, like, well, if you are a ritzy exclusionary area, at least pay up and, like, you know, money should flow. But, like, usually the case is you're exclusionary and you don't even, like, compensate the rest of the community for your, you know, for what you've carved out for yourself. And that, that's, a, the, that's the problem with mill rates and property taxes, right? Is, I, I don't know how, if you, if you guys have mill rates in California. Is that how it works there? Well, yeah, California is really screwed up insofar yeah. as it is. Yes. Uh, Prop, 13, <laughs> Prop 13 makes the mill yeah. rate. Uh, basically, it's, it's 1%. Yeah everywhere so every, everyone maxes out the same mill rate uh so but other parts of the country yeah there's a lot more uh variance from from place to place right so in vancouver we don't have prop 13 but we do have uh, we have uh basically what happens is that our um our city budgets stay basically um the, the same they don't increase or decrease very much. Or even if the population increases, is usually from these rental buildings like or, or condo buildings that keep on being built. And they tend to pay a bunch of CACs, community amenity contributions, and DCLs, development uh, cost levies. So they pay a bunch of extra fees. So they more than pay for themselves. And so if the city budgets increase, it's usually from those kinds of fees. Um, and so what happens is property or general property tax rates keep on going down. Vancouver's property tax rate is something like 0.2%. It's super low. All these properties uh, properties are increasing in value. And so actually the tax rate can go down because the budget is basically staying the same, or at least the increases in budget are being paid for by the condo developments. So what happens is the property rates go down for all of these extremely expensive detached houses. And then 
the rates go down, therefore it becomes even more profitable to buy these things and they have a higher cap rate and they don't have to they pay less percentage of their of their untaxed capital gains. So basically taxes go down and so it's a better investment. It's, a, it's, be, they're, yeah. it, it's incredible how regressive our taxation schemes are. And that's one thing I really want to emphasize about housing politics and for leftist organizations in general is that if you are not looking at budgets and taxes and how regressive those things are, you are failing. <laughs> how much you think regulations can stop luxury housing production? No, if you if you are not considering the ramifications of your tax policy and your budgets, you are failing as a leftist organization. Follow, so, follow the money, you know. You have to follow see the goddamn money. Absolutely. And yeah. if you're not seeing this, if you're not seeing the how these property mill rates, there, there's like it, it's myth making. All I hear all the time. Oh, if we if we raise property taxes, all these working class families in their what multi million dollar houses are gonna have to pay higher taxes. I'm sorry, but you can set up exceptions. You can set up things like deferrals. You can you can make sure that people or don't have to get kicked out of the houses if you don't want them to. They have to pay higher taxes. There's no way you can get get towards an equitable society without higher taxes on the wealthy and that is a huge up in most like housing discourses is that like taxes 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 so who's that guy yeah. that just said that in in like the un or whatever yeah if you're not looking at taxes and how where the money is coming from and who is not paying taxes you're you're failing yeah it's 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 really weird how like of all things that are like it's like even more the people being evicted displaced facing incredible housing uh you know insecurity due to high rent payments people spend more of their energy worrying about hypothetical you know tax foreclosures upon people who are like suffering from oh i i own too much real estate wealth it's like this is like that is not a legitimate concern in the the big scheme of things but no. uh but also i'd say like vancouver just based on the fact that you actually like at least have like some denser housing you're starting to see it kind of diverge from in cal like california most places around you start to see like okay you know ideally you want land taxes but property taxes are good enough because you kind of have like it's all land wealth and a little bit of housing on top same difference it's you know pretty much good enough if you just kind of use it but like i think up in vancouver when you're seeing newer like condos it's like more of the tax being paid by the property, like the structure. Mm -hmm. And then it's essentially the like the landowners are getting kind of a free ride and including for, you know, all, all the, the big swaths of single family, you know, homes. And you Vancouver had a history of like having much more on the land base and less on the improvements. And that there was essentially a tax revolt. It wasn't really kind of a rubber stamp, you know, big decree forever like Prop 13, but there was a tax revolt. And I mean, from from my perspective, it certainly looks like Vancouver politics is controlled by property owners for property owner interests. And, you know, it's like, how do you get from here to there? Because, I mean, you have more renters and property owners. Seems like you have the beginnings of a politics to kind of change that. Well, um, there are actually not, I don't, at least not, maybe nowadays, I haven't checked the stats recently, but uh, 
there's more renter households. And since renter households are smaller usually than detached house owner households, I don't oh, know. Oh, okay. That's a good point. Um, we actually have majority renter yet. But definitely in terms of households, we do. And of course, increasingly so. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm not worried. I do believe that the housing politics here will just increasingly become more pro renter and we'll get more protections and all the good stuff. Um, but just because of demographic shifts. Um, but yeah, so. I really wish that we all, there, there's a very clear problem here and that's landlords. It is the landowners who are just ma- getting away with it all with lower taxes over time because the property values go up. They don't have to pay any extra development cost levies or, or anything that, that, but they're displacing people all the bloody time. Uh, these people are being discriminated against because they can and it, it's a really horrible situation. And yeah, they, they make so much money from the land and that tax revolt by these landowners in the in the 70s, I believe, as well. So much happened in the 70s. Um, <laughs> a horrible pun. Um, yeah, it, it's really necessary for us to all sort of, again, all these leftist organizations, we need to follow the money here and we need to like, Sure, you guys can, you can get try and get as much money from developers as you, as you can, or especially the for-profit ones. I hope that you are, you know, we should move towards, like, for example, social housing developers, they also pay the same provincial uh, fees and, and taxes on their developments. Uh, you know, we should actually just let them not pay it. Yeah, so more subsidy on that end. Deliver, yeah. yeah, deliver lower housing costs. <laughs> um, yeah. But anyway, uh, yes, sure. You, you can have these taxes for these for-profit developers if you want, but you absolutely need taxes for landowners. And yeah, if you don't tax the land, you're just foregoing. And, and I don't care if you think it's it's big institutional landlords or just your mom and pop like, your, my, my parents, your parents, everybody's parents who own a bunch of a chunk of land, they should not be making tax-free millions off of it. They didn't create that value. That is created by the city, by the by the governments, by just everybody, because we're all building a, a really good city and amenities and all that kind of stuff. Like they need to contribute. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's I, I get I get like it sounds like my general frame of reference is like. I, I think Vancouver is where California is headed. So a lot of times like, okay, you know, we got to get ready. I mean, and I guess I don't know what you have to look forward to around around the world. But like, it's kind of, it's like, okay, you know, if we just kind of have more stuff happen, stuff will get better, but you still see the same dead end kind of mistakes. And I feel like one of the biggest mistakes, like you see this right now in the news, if it's like, oh, BlackRock is buying up all these, you know, homes and renting it like they're endangering it's it's basically big money versus homeowners as opposed to the idea like they're all they're just basically they're all they're all all landlord they're all profiteering in the same way you know one just you know has a scarier name behind it and they're both antagonizing renters so like yeah the left needs to stop you know supporting homeowner investors but the other part of that is it sounds like you're you're still seeing all this kind of bad faith uh or maybe stupidity, I don't know, but like you're talking about like social housing versus you know, you know public housing and if you're pu- if you're pitting them against each other, which in this case you're saying social housing is, you know, an income mix, social, you know, basically cross subsidies and so on. And if people are saying, well, it's not it's like not subsidized enough, it needs to be 100% or nothing, like it's like is that is that done only by like just 
incredibly bad faith or do you think there's people who get like roped into that just because they don't really think it through i would say that the leadership of those the people you know have this smoke screen of saying oh social housing isn't good enough um there are people that i'm just going to name them J uh, pete fry of the green party our, our municipal greens are just are, are notorious for doing this is finding woke washed excuses to try and say no to social housing or, so, or policies that would encourage social housing production so recently christine boyle one of our much more progressive and and, and actually getting done sort of uh, leftist politicians she tried to get a uh, for social housing providers to be able to build up to 12 stories of social housing anywhere in Vancouver, or not anywhere in Vancouver, in, in more more areas of vancouver they can buy right so they can not go through these ridiculous rezoning uh, politics rezoning hearings and they could just build it by right in certain sections of vancouver um that did not pass because mostly because the greens uh, voted against it and one of the reasons was oh social housing isn't good enough <sighs> Absolutely, because yeah, social housing providers again, they're they're nonprofits. There is no profit involved. They're doing the best they can, and if you want them to do better, you have to provide government subsidy, ongoing, indexed to inflation, real dollars to lower those housing costs. If you don't do that, you're just you're making what excuses to not to not to say no to social housing, and you're doing that because the Greens. Well, who are your voters? Your voters are mostly detached housing or housing owners who think being green is having a lawn and a couple of trees in their in their their backyards. Who look at green things and think that is living green. So they're they're basically conservatives and Teslas. So. Yeah, I mean that's I mean that's the thing. I think the divide between people who want to make change and basically green flavored conservatives and that's i am optimistic that's changing and i'm seeing a little bit between i mean i don't really know uh, this fry guy in general but with the green but it seems like there is at least a divide like i think young people don't tend to think that the status quo of property owning investment is tenable or good Whereas kind of the older guard are like, no, we have a good thing going. Let's just plug away with it. And the fact that I personally am a homeowner or whatever, let's just ignore the, ignore my personal material interests. I just think this is great. I mean, I, I just I, I think generation gap stuff is going to drive a lot of change in, in organizations, at least I, I hope. And the question is, will it change fast enough? Mm -hmm. I will say that like there's no there's no antagonism between public housing providers and social housing providers. Those two are always helping like, trying to help each other out, right? Sure. Like we do have some public housing built in Vancouver. It's it's mostly like temporary modular housing, basically. It's like 100% public subsidies. It's all like low barrier shelter rate, etc. Like $375 a month, basically, which is our um, shelter. Uh, proportion of our welfare rates so like that's that's great and they're always helping each other out you'll see the exact same people along with like housing activists like me show up for both those things jill Aki of the, the ceo of the non bc nonprofit housing association will show up for all these <laughs> these public housing proposals as well so like you see the exact same people supporting those both things there are those things are not at all antagonistic whatsoever the choice is not between public housing or social housing just build on both of those and, and both of them together are still contributing to like not enough production and you know it's kind of like you're pitting two good things against each other instead of like just letting this just enormous you know uh, regressive force just chug along as, you know with, with no opposition 
Absolutely. These two, like, and, and those two groups of people, all those housing providers are, all, are also usually in favor of market rental, like purpose-built rental as well. Yeah. I, I, I very, really rarely see cases where social housing um, providers are saying, oh yeah, we shouldn't build market rental. No, no, no. Everybody realizes that we really need anything but these detached mansions. Anything yeah. but. Everything else is a step towards more affordability. Sure, condos are, are are not affordable to everybody, but it's at least a hell of a lot better than detached houses worth three million ten dollars. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I just I mean as far as organizing goes, like, it's like, it, like, I feel like the waiting game for generation gap stuff. I don't know if that's, I see a lot of that. I just think, I hear people saying, like, oh, yeah, the planning department's full of old people. Like, these orgs are full of old people. They're just awful. Like, but they'll age out and die, and then things will get better. It's like, well, I mean, that's, that's a theory of change. I just don't know if, like, is that the only thing we can do? Or, like, are you seeing you can actually change hearts and minds? And, you know, like, well, what, what's, what's your model organizing? What are you kind of seeing as far as changing this? Yeah, I think that we can't just wait around for for generational shifts. Like fundamentally, of course, as as you, as you know, land ownership is a Ponzi scheme. The the wealth gains of the of the current you know boomer and older generations are coming directly from the next buyers. The, people who are younger and so you're either super rich and can afford them it's going to be a smaller and smaller proportion of people who can buy these things um so yeah i'm hopeful that we are going to move away from this this idea that that this is okay that you can have both housing as a retirement fund and housing affordability no prices are either going up or down and you cannot have both affordability yeah. and housing as a wealth machine so yes i'm hopeful that that our next generation will increasingly just realize this but also um what i see in terms of housing organization is um it's really good for uh for for EMBR organizations in particular to focus on the non-market stuff first because um you'll get so many people who are just not at all interested or organized or just not radicalized yet you'll get people um activated through these sort of public hearings as well so when you when people are hearing when you know the average renter is hearing what this social housing you know this indigenous and swahili led um social housing development on a community land trust is getting a huge opposition in new westminster because property owners in, the, in that detached house neighborhood are all like you know writing petitions and such, such against it that's a really good scenario where we can have some solidarity between renters and people who actually want social housing and, and housing for everybody in every single neighborhood versus again landowners um it's really not developers that are the enemy here it is these landowners these nimbies who are saying oh yeah no never here never here everybody's always saying never here there's too much traffic no too much shadows too much everybody knows the exact knows the drill it's like the exact same arguments at least everybody in EMBA organizations know, but normal renters often don't. And that is a really good place. Like one of my coworkers recently was like, she's like, she's a renter in U.S. minister. And she's like, this is horrible. And she was like, how can I get involved, Jen? And I was like, oh, okay, just sign up for this and the newsletter. You'll, you'll, they'll, they'll let you know. It's really easy. They'll let you know in your email when there's a really good social housing project that's getting on a bunch of opposition. You can just click a, click a link. You can write a letter immediately to the council and support this, these sort of projects. So that's where I see opportunities to just like be the vanguard of getting people organized and supporting yeah because if you don't support change you're fundamentally going to be for the status quo you can try and push for better definitions for social housing 
but unless you're also pushing at the yeah. federal level, CNBC is going to be trying is, is giving people funds um, based on these definitions. Uh, on the BC level as well, um, all the there, there's certain uh, uh, there's certain programs uh, that are trying to basically grow the social housing sector. These are all fundamentally based on the, these definitions that already exist for a long time. And you're not gonna get at the municipal level if you just focus on municipal politics and say at the public hearing, oh yeah, the social housing definition isn't good enough. I'm sorry, but that's gonna change nothing. All you're gonna do is make sure that that social housing complex is not gonna get built and it's gonna be a, I don't know, $5 million duplex instead. So no. <laughs> yeah, I, bad stuff. I mean, I think people like, there's a history of like, Make it small, make it local, organize for very small, you know, things. But, like, I think when you have, like, you treat everything as an individual case-by-case case basis, like, nothing gets done. And you really need, like, I think for, like, to spin up social housing, you need to make, okay, here's a rule. You can hammer it out. If it should be 31% of 30, well, you can you can fight for that. But let's make sure we hammer it out and then we just scale it and we just do what works as opposed to, yeah, it's like I think localism is it's it, it it there's so many pitfalls at least in the way that we govern it now maybe we can make it work for localism uh, when you're talking about that uh you know swahili etc you know social housing clt thing well the, where the petitions do they try to be woke or are these kind of just like where these like just kind of because i feel there's there's two kinds of basic nimbies the ones who like want to feel like good people and the ones who just say like no you know throw these people into a furnace i don't care i just want less traffic um, yeah, so I think that in this case, it was pretty obvious the, the they were the latter. Um, they, a lot of the time, their arguments were couched around, uh, quote, res uh, respecting the OCP, unquote. So the OCP being the official community plan, um, and mm -hmm. the, the official community plan in that area of New Westminster was, oh yeah, mostly detached, single detached houses. Um, again, we're not talking about a tower here. We're talking about, I think it was six story or seven story social housing in sure. led and for indigenous and black folks. And yeah, these are, so it's very hard to, to build a, oh, like, you know, um, a, a woke wash argument against something like that, right? So, it, 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 describe the neighborhood this was in, again, like where is this com in comparison to everything else? Uh, New Westminster is to the east of of the city of Vancouver. It is probably the um, next to Burnaby, one of the, the bigger cities and relatively more progressive in terms of in terms of uh, the city council. There's yeah. some renter, uh, there's some uh, rent, uh, rental development and social, um, not much, not, not much social development, social housing development yet. Hopefully, more of that in New Westminster. Um, the, but but, the, but the, as a Vancouver person, a Vancouver person doesn't have a whole lot of distinct political pressure to get you know to get them you know to get their act together there's no no there's no pressure from there's a little bit of pressure at the regional level so we have like a, a metro vancouver level of governance as well um but there's not much pressure there um but the city hall there did uh, pass that so pass that project so that's good i, I didn't nice. expect them to not honestly they, they do have a pretty progressive city council so they said yes to that project honestly like especially with recently when we we had a uh, we recently found uh, 215 um, uh, bodies in a mass grave, indigenous bodies in a mass grave in a, like a Catholic school um, recently uh, around these parts. And like, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a residential school issue. And it, in that context, are you going to say no to indigenous led social housing? Like,
<laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so uh, I don't want to digress too much, but basically, yeah, so US politics is, is relatively, um, it's also quite heavy in ventures. It's a relatively progressive. Um, and they didn't say yes, but yeah, the opposition was all just, oh yeah, you have to respect the OCP of what super segregated exclusionary detached houses. Um, they had a petition of 1200 signatures. They organized um, yeah, mostly around the lines. Their arguments were respect the OCP, um, basically just, yeah, loss of views, loss of traffic, loss of you know, all the usual arguments, um, loss of uh, street parking. So yeah, uh, the, the, this, the usual arguments, and I don't really see any variation on that much. It's, it's a little bit of, okay, how, how woke wash can you make it if it's against, a, I don't know, for-profit condo development versus like if it's indigenous like, social housing, you can't really woke wash it much. So you basically, they, they basically fall into the same patterns of, of the usual NIMBY arguments. Yeah. And as far as like woke washing too, I mean, I, 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 as far as indigenous stuff, I, I feel like it'd be best to hear from, you know, Squamish people themselves, but like from your perspective, how often, like, cause I think one of the things here is like you hear land acknowledgements by a bunch of, you know, landowners and speculators who like say they you know, want land back, but like they aren't doing anything to achieve it. And I guess a big question is kind of like, what, like, what do you see as the overall, I mean, as far as like, public holdings because if the city had the public lands land back would be easy you just carve it off and you have a pluralistic you know because i think you know a lot of things the squamish nation is doing in vancouver is very uh you know inspiring and, and it kind of shows a way forward yeah but like i guess the question is how do you get land back if it is currently in private hands you know it's like is there any kind of roadmap for for people for people doing that there or like what, 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 or how do people organize around this um, that's a good question. So we are slowly sometimes giving parcels back. So the city will acquire pieces of the land very slowly over time. Um, they'll, you know, it's a kind of an assembly and they sometimes might um, pass it back to an indigenous, uh, either corporation or a reserve or such. There are some things like, I believe around Sinak, um, there is a, uh, like an ex-military base. They've worn down their operations like an ex-naval base, I believe. And so that that's currently mostly a park. And there is some organizing, I think, around giving some of that back to the again, this is right next to Snack, or the Squamish um reserve or the Squamish um parcel reserve. So it's like that that sort of thing is is doable, but it's really much on the margins, right? Like I, I wish yeah. that we could do much more on a bigger scale. I think um there is I don't know. I, I wish that there were more opportunities around this. Um, we did return Jericho. So Jericho is also um, a like a, a big section of Vancouver. Um, again, it was mostly used for uh, military operations. Um, I, used, I remember when I was in my high, in high school years, I was in band and then I like participated in the military band because my father was part of it and my music teacher was part of it. And mm. like, yeah, I remember going there. It's like way out in the far rich areas of west, the west side of Vancouver. Anyway, a bunch of that was given back to the MST Corporation, the Musqueam's Commission's Sweet Tooth Corporation, which is like, it's a development corporation owned by them. And yeah, they're going to do some big developments there as well, I believe. And that's so. There's a couple of things going that we can. And again, you can like we can support these, and that helps. I was going to mention when you said land back. I absolutely think that we should push the conversation. Land acknowledgments tend to say like, oh yeah, I'll acknowledge that um, I live on the unceded lands of the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam nations. Not good enough anymore. <laughs> that is not 
sure, you can acknowledge it, but what's the next step? So we're talking about reconciliation when we're not talking about action enough. And yes, if you're saying that, and I support, the next step will be to say, and I support the land back, the land, the private lands being of, of, of Vancouver and of the, of the municipality, of the metro, et cetera, to be returned to the Indigenous nations, like the First Nations, like that, that's the next step. And yeah. I don't actually think that people realize that we are all settlers who have, you know, our parents' generation in particular, but we have all benefited from this exclusionary, segregationist, um, white supremacist past. And you're still, and your family, most, most people, these white people's families have like these this intergenerational real estate wealth. Like that is the legacy of yeah. white supremacist colonial institutions. And if you are not saying that you're okay with giving out at least some of that value or some of that land or whatever, you are complicit in this. And so that is really that next step, I believe, of just, we have to realize that, yeah, we're, we're, it doesn't mean, it's not just governments and, and, and developers that have to grapple with this. It's all of us. Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, I think as far as, you know, I think it's it's as far as like I think people might like say oh land back oh, are you really saying you're gonna like uproot everybody and just you know like it's it's if you kind of like frame it as like oh it's kind of oh it's an obviously silly thing to do because it's unrealistic and you can do nothing as opposed to the fact that we have existing all land wealth now is part of the pyramid scheme of stolen land yep. and all land is stolen land and really you just need to get from here there by sharing it better and I think Vancouver is one of the good places I feel in America a lot of it's like oh you know land acknowledgement and of course you know these people they're, they're never going to do anything with it because you know it's kind of ancient history as opposed to vancouver is actually on like is doing stuff for pluralistic land sharing in a way that kind of is undoing harms but then also figuring out how to live together and like that's what you need to do you know as opposed to just kind of like oh you know massacres happened things happen now let me continue to speculate on homeownership you know it's like which is just i think that that's weird mental you know kind of contradictions that a lot of people hold it's it's really gross i think that the what people need to understand that like land back doesn't mean oh we're going to uproot all these white people from these these lands and and you know, indigenous people are gonna go back to living on by fishing or like subsistence farming or something like that. Obviously, like the the thing is that all of that that perspective also is so informed by these like we like you know the 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 noble savage preconceptions and just white supremacist preconceptions, right? Like the thing is, urban and indigenous people are clearly not they they are well, the things that they're doing with their land is building rental housing and they're building you know indigenous land trust communities and it's good like, looking at housing too you know they're it's just really... building housing they're building housing for people they are like I, i've talked to um Houselam, who is a um uh, elected uh, counselor with the Squamish nation and he is the school their spokesperson he, one of my urbanist friends uh, he, he identifies as a leftist urbanist and he um was saying how it's like we are welcoming we are welcoming of people we want people to be here we 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 they like he he is not going to uproot people he wants people to age in place he wants people to be able to uh, live in vancouver especially when we're talking about like the climate catastrophe in many countries around the world and we're going to have immigration and we're never going to not immigrate people and have people coming to vancouver so yeah he's very welcoming this nation and he are very welcoming of more people here of course the gains of 
land, the gains of all these things have to be shared equitably. And currently, the you know the disproportionate number of people uh, of Squamish folks are, are are homeless. Like the homeless population here in Vancouver is like is, is I believe majority indigenous when they're only like a couple percentage of the overall population. It is like the status quo is absolutely unacceptable. But through change we, we land back and we have squamish nations uh, and the other first nations have like their have sovereignty and they are able to um to actually have a stake in the in the growth of vancouver i think that that is a much better step forward than the status quo of yeah the vast majority of the value of land just going to the the um families international intergenerational wealth of families of, of southern yeah, it's like it's like it's very hard to undo past wrongs, but the best thing you can do to start is just stop the machine from like chugging along the way it is because it's like we're it's like we're all complicit, but to be very clear, people currently profiting off of land ownership are more complicit. I think someone who is landless is less complicit. Uh, I mean, yeah. it's like, yeah, it's like, uh, I, I think that's worth worth kind of underlining. But yeah, I think we, we, we've been talking for a bit. Uh, I mean, do, is there anything else you would kind of underline? I mean, like, we could get like a bit more like housing allowance, you know, kind of politics, or, you know, if anything else you want to kind of make sure that you underline, or if you think you've said everything that's worth saying here today, you know, you feel free to tie a bone on too. Oh, actually, one last thing I, I mentioned, yeah, like about housing allowance. So, um, one of the the, pro- the major problems of social housing, and one thing that's that's keeping them from being able to afford deeper levels of, of or or provide housing for everybody, is the fact that our housing allowance is currently at three hundred three hundred and seventy five dollars, and that in it was raised once I think in the last something like fifteen years from three fifty to three seventy five. Can you explain exactly what the housing allowance is, and how it functions? Mm-hmm. So it's a provincial level subsidy. It's it's basically our housing welfare rate. It's part of the social assistance pack- package, um, and it is a it's basically kind of a, a housing voucher. It's it's money that it's meant for housing. And what happens for things like the public housing, the temporary modular housing, is that three hundred seventy five dollars per person will go towards a um, the you know the housing provider, whether it's a nonprofit or the government itself or whatever it is. So um, it is yeah. Who who gets it? Um, people who qualify for it. So if you is it just an income limit? Like, what's 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 the dividing line? Oh, uh, good question. Um, I don't know what the exact uh, limit is right now. Uh, it's been changing. Uh, yeah, it, it goes up oh, every every year, I believe. Um, I, sorry, I don't know the exact numbers on that, but I can get sure. That but it, it kind of it, it, it it's some sort of you know relating to the median income, I imagine, or something. But it's still but it's still it's a flat three hundred seventy five dollars, which doesn't get very far. <laughs> very far. Yeah. I believe it's something like $23,000 or less. Um, anyway. well, that's not many people then. No, it's not very many people. Um, and so again, it's all about budgets. Like frankly, you, if you want to put your money, your money where your mouth is, it's, it's like, it has to be things like, okay, you're giving more money to people who needed the social housing assistance money that has to be increased and and it has to be indexed inflation. We do not do that right now in Vancouver. Um, and that is an enormous problem. Even our leftist NDP government only raised it once in their during their tenure. And during the, the previous, the, the more right-wing government, the liberals, they didn't raise it at all. So like the fact that it is not indexed with inflation means that social housing providers cannot actually build housing for 
these people because like they know that over time they're going to be able to afford less and less like they're the the real dollars in terms of real dollars they are going to have less and less to contribute over to overall housing and so basically they'll need increasing subsidies from all the market rent um units and that's not how it works (laughs) yeah they can't necessarily um provide that so if we if we want everybody to have housing and yes everybody should be able to afford either social housing or market housing or both or ideally like we absolutely need to make sure that our um our housing assistance is indexed to inflation that is like fundamental and something that i've like impressed upon the provincial government so many times is that this is this is unacceptable and yeah it it's all about it comes down to taxes and budgets sure we need to stop subsidizing home ownership we have to subsidize renters yeah but it also seems like yeah it's like you're kind of like if you're even just tweaking this housing allowance which only goes to some part of people like really it's 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 you know sure it helps but really what you need is just like affecting the industrial policy of the built environment of the city to affect you know because like you're like at the margin trying to like tweak these little you know help you know at the at the edges but you know prices are soaring you know suffering is going up homelessness like is like close to being like tripled in the last you know couple you know a couple decades or more or something it's like it's you need big solutions for when you have the actual structural structures of your city are just you know are, are falling apart and i don't i don't know it's like it takes a lot of a lot of political will to to change that but yeah if, if you're not even if you're not even indexing this housing allowance sounds like you're not like not even trying yeah absolutely um there are, we need both big solutions and these uh, like things that are going to help um the low-income people yeah sure not many people are getting this income allowance but like absolutely there are also some other people who are most vulnerable so yeah. we absolutely need to be doing all of these things and unfortunately it is just such an uphill battle even with a relatively left-wing federal government relatively left-wing B- bc government provincial government and rel and okay municipal governments like all over the place <laughs> Yeah, it, it's even hard during these times, but it, for us, at least here, it is an opportunity while these relatively leftist governments are in power and we have to do as much as we possibly can. Um, so yeah, I'm trying to push on all fronts, uh, you know, like tax the wealthy, tax the tax land wealth, tax it all, and use those taxes, that revenue to subsidize for people who are lower income and renters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like there is there is at least some good game plans there, but it's very hard to, you know, herd all these cats and, you know, make stuff happen but you know good it sounds like you're you know chipping away at it and making uh making uh you know some waves so yeah uh thanks for the update and uh happy to have you back uh, to you know, talk about uh updates in vancouver anytime no thank you so much for having me it was fun and sorry for all the ranting i love that <laughs> no no it's it's, it's <laughs> we have been hearing from jennifer bradshaw all about social housing public housing and much more in vancouver you can hear this episode and all previous episodes of this radio program at the website seethecat.org. This is a presentation of KZSU, Stanford. <laughs>